Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of The Daily Grind. On today's episode, we're sitting down with an amazing human being, former NHL or now successful entrepreneur and marketer, Brad Delgarno. A lot to be learned from today's episode, everyone. Be sure, as always, to have a pen, piece of paper, sit back, and dive deep in today's interview with Brad Delgarno. Enjoy. Today's episode is brought to you by the Just Go Grind podcast with Justin Gordon. As many of you know, I went from five days a week here on the Daily Grind to one day a week. That leaves plenty of days and a lot to learn from so many other people. And Just Go Grind and the podcast of Justin is absolutely amazing. I would encourage you all to go and check out that podcast. He interviews entrepreneurs, CEOs, and other go-getters, giving you actionable insight each and every episode. Some of the episodes and people and guests he've had on are absolutely amazing from Vanessa Du, who's the founder of a hundred plus million revenue dollar company, Health Aid Kombucha, and Rob Mather, founder and CEO of Against Malaria Foundation, one of the world's top rated charities, which has now raised more than 230 plus million dollars, which is absolutely amazing. So be sure, guys, go and check out the Just Go Grind podcast with Justin Gordon today. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Simply search Just Go Grind to find it. You can also find it in the show notes section of this podcast, everyone. Keep grinding. Now, without further ado, please meet Brad Delgarno. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Daily Grime. We have a very special guest lined up for you all today. We're joined by former NHLer, now successful entrepreneur, Brad Delgarno, someone that I know personally. We've spoken to him uh, a few times, don't know each other too, too well, but I've had the pleasure of, of sitting down with him a few times and we're introducing him to you all today. Brad, how are you? I'm good. Nice to talk to you, Colin. Looking of course. Looking forward to our chat. Of course, Brad. So uh, we're going to kind of start from the beginning. I, I read online you, you grew up or you were born in, in BC, but grew up in Whitby. Um, talk to us briefly about your childhood. Oh, Christ. Okay. So um, born in Vancouver, all my relatives are there other than my parents. And uh, Whitby was only one stop in seven. So we, we okay. now, my dad was not in the military. He was in a printing in the printing business, but not unlike me, which we'll probably touch on this, this, uh, didn't have a degree, was trying to figure out how to kind of advance. So he happened to be working for a national printing company that had offices across the country uh, back when you couldn't, you know, just like today where you have to actually brew beer in each province, you know, yeah. all inner, inner trade policies. Anyway, so he took opportunities as they arose. We lived in Calgary. We lived in London, Ontario twice, lived in Halifax, back to back to London, and then uh, my parents landed in Whitby, and that's when I kind of jettisoned off into my hockey Hamilton world and then on to New York from there. So we bounced around a lot, and then I bounced around, even though I was only with the Islanders for my whole career, between the minors back and forth. I think I actually moved 22 times in my per- wow. personal life, let alone my – so I was very used to packing up and moving. Yeah, was uh, when you were growing up, was was hockey the main sport? Did you play other sports? Um, I didn't. Wow, I think I got to London, which was our third house, uh, just to turn five, heading into six. And my parents didn't know hockey. I do remember having the Canucks broadcasts on in the house. Okay. I don't know why, but I remember that at a very young age. But uh, no sports. Uh, Really, we weren't really sporty. Um, And then uh, my parents asked the neighbor, what do you guys 
what do the kids do here? Because I want my kids to meet other kids. And uh, so hockey was the thing they played in London and I started with a half ice, but I was big. I was a big kid for my age. Yeah. And, uh, horrible. I mean, everybody was learning to skate, but I was really not great. So power skating and a whole bunch of stuff, not with this idea that I'd make it to the NHL, but so I didn't hit hit and fall on kids, which I was doing in the first <laughs> first, first year. So it was very uh, uh, incidental that I ended up in hockey. Interesting. So at what age or at what level did you kind of realize that there may be a future in hockey for you? It was late. Um, I was I, because of all of that and my size and, you know, uh, some natural ability, um, always kind of played on the competitive team and in, in where I was living, but, um, there were always guys better. There were always guys that everybody talked about, Oh, they're going to go to junior B. Oh, they're going to go to, they're going to play in the NHL. Never in my wildest dreams did that really settle as an option for me until I think until, uh, just before junior B became a potential thing. For okay. Me. Um, and, uh, ended up getting, uh, an opportunity to play for Markham's junior B, which is not, everybody asked me, was it the Markham waxers, which was their provincial A team? No. Anyways, I played for them for a year and then, uh, uh, it was really only then that like scouts seemed to come around and the kids that were supposedly and kind of always perceived as kind of the kids going there were falling off a little bit. And, uh, yeah. Without any grand plan at all, I just kind of get – I played in the next where people pointed. Okay, well, you're going to go play there now. And it, my parents didn't have a grand plan. I didn't have a grand plan. Uh, and it dawned on me at some point that this could – you know, I could play junior B. Holy cow. Well, geez, I could actually play in the OHL. And then, you know, this notion of the NHL started after – you know, once you're in your middle of your first year and you're – in central scouting and people are yeah. paying attention. So none of it was a plan. None of it was my dream. Uh, I think I wanted to be a, a marine biologist, which, oh, was, which was just a bullshit thing, but it <laughs> sounds good. And I loved, uh, <laughs> I think I loved Jacques Cousteau back in the day. So, Oh, interesting. That's funny. So, but uh, obviously highly talented. You went sixth overall. What part of the game was strongest for you? All right. Well, that's also part of my, uh, Part of my story is the fact that I was drafted so high, sixth overall, which is a big deal. But you have to go back four or five months of my draft year to realize I was rated by Central Scouting, you know, middle of the second round. That was, Interesting. That was, it was okay. great. I, and honestly, in hindsight, um, all the advantages I got from being in a first round pick, which there are many, but it also comes with expectations to be the next, you know, Clark Gillies and Bob Nystrom combined. Uh, but if I would have maybe snuck in there in the second round, you know, my whole thing was always being that underdog. Uh, and I always loved that position of being an underdog and, uh, you know, being the top dog going into camp was not something I was used to. So, uh, anyway, so we were on a, the OHL game of the week playing Sault Ste. Marie with a former against a former teammate who happened to be Bob Probert. Okay. Uh, and he was Bob Probert back then. He was already on his way into being like, just the biggest heavyweight around. And uh, we were, I think we were actually on a global game of the week on, on a Saturday afternoon on TV. And we had a full on bench brawl on television. And I ended up squaring off, not intentionally, but because we happened to be in a, a scrum together, Bob Probert and I were locked up 
and we fought. And uh, I did okay not being a fighter, but you know it became a bit of a big deal. I didn't realize it was a big deal, but in the scouting community, it was holy cow, this guy was good, and now he's a he's he can hold his own with the heavyweights. So. Leading up to draft week, my my stock I kept hearing was going up. Well, you're in the top of the second now. We got you rated there. Oh, the bottom of the first. And so I think by draft day, based on the meetings I had had with several teams, I thought best case scenario would be around 13th. I think LA. I thought okay. I had a good interview with LA. Um, Islanders were the worst interview out of all time. It was horrible. Really? Pulled up. My parents bought me this suit. It was. It was like a light cream suit in <laughs> uh, a goddamn hotel room um, that, uh, you know, six men staring at you in a trainer, bending your knees. And it looked, I felt like you, you're a racehorse getting inspected in a very small room by a bunch of men who were just asking you, you know, so you think you're pretty flashy eh, with that suit? I'm like, I don't know. I, just, I didn't buy the suit. I just got the suit. So I just thought they were thought I was an ass for some reason. And I left there totally thinking that was brutal. Uh, so when the sixth pick came along and the Islanders picked Brad Delgarno, I mean, I stood up. I didn't even know what I was doing. I looked around for my family. I didn't know where anybody was. I was just out to lunch. And the team didn't have, a, like every other team, you know, in the top 10 had jerseys made for their guys. The Islanders had one jersey that was too small for me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it just felt like it was not – intended it just felt like it was an interesting maybe it was uh but they had done some shuffling because Derek king ended up getting drafted shortly thereafter also and you know i'm sitting there on my greatest achievement day and they're like oh brad give us the jersey back we got to put it on Derek." so it was like there wasn't like two jerseys <laughs> anyways so that was how it all started it all started and so i started my you know my career um expected to be as i had said clark gillies and bob nystrom yeah. Tough guy can handle the puck. And fighting was just never my – like, I was never good at it. I I fought a bunch in the early years only because people came after me and my coach kept putting me out in those situations. So, you know, the the Barubis and, you know, you name it. I, you know, yeah. I didn't have to fight them. Um, but uh, that was not my thing, and it, it ended up being a big transitional part for me because um, ultimately, which was a big part of this narrative as well, um, I think second year in, end of the second or third year, I don't remember, um, I ended up having to fight Joey Kosher. Yes. And that was a big heavyweight. And he hit me once in the in the temple. Uh, boom. I went down. It felt like an egg had broken in my face. I knew something was wrong. There was no blood, but it felt bad. And uh, he had broken the orbit and cheekbone, three different places. Wow. He had, uh, with one punch, found the button, and it just, just it just collapsed. I think Newsday had written uh, a follow-up story and had described that Brad's face was like a rotted pumpkin. <laughs> oh, it, was, it was so bad. Yeah. And, in fact, it, it was bad because it was collapsed in here. It looked like I had a stroke. It was terrible. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that started this process of me coming back the next year, um, not being the same guy that I was emotionally or, you know, confidence wise uh and they wanted me to still be a fighter and wanted me to not wear my visor which was protecting my eye that i almost lost and then i quit for a year i just quit actually i quit forever it turned out to be a year but i quit the nhl after coming back from that injury 
never to go back. And that's where I, I got my first taste of trying to start a business. Interesting. And, uh, well, that's kind of how it all started and, and kind of whet my appetite with that. Was the main reason for you quitting just was it from that fight? Maybe you lost the enjoyment of the game or, or I know you had mentioned about the visor. Like it was it a bunch of different factors. It was, it was all of that. The visor was just a visual element that, that, you know, the team wouldn't even say to me directly, but through my agent at the time, I'd get these phone calls, uh, Brad, you know, they don't want you to, they don't want, they're not going to have you play with the team unless you take the visor off. And I'm like, you wow. realize that, I like, I'm still not entirely sure that my eyes are going to stay. Like it's, you know, this was still healing. It was healed, but I'm like, there's still some settling going on. We have no idea. So it wasn't that it was the Islanders were in a bad spot. I don't think they were their best organization at that time. I don't think there was a lot of um, coaching or player development happening at that time. We lost a couple other guys that were after me that kind of fell apart as well. I, I just don't think that team was a good fit for me yep. and the expectation on me wasn't good. And I was dealing with ulcers and anxieties and lack of confidence. And I just, it just came to me when they were, I knew the day was coming, they were going to send me to the minors instead of having me back. And uh, the, you know, they had a list of guys on the walls that had to go into a room and talk with Bill Torrey, who was the general manager at the time. And so they pulled me in and, you know, like a movie, kind of a semi-dark, empty hockey dress room uh, with two folding chairs in the middle of the room. And Bill stands up, shakes my hand. We sit down on these chairs facing each other about two feet apart. And he goes, Brad, we got to talk. I said, Bill, yes, we do. And he paused and he said, okay, you first. And I went, so here's what's happening. I am, uh, I'm leaving the team. I think I have to go and take care of myself because this is nothing here. I, I'm not the guy you want me to be. I don't think I can be the guy you want me to be. And uh, I think there are better things that I should be doing um, to, 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 to develop and advance. And this is just not working for me. Anyway, so he called in the whole, he called in the army, scouts, coaches, and it was like a team of people all of a sudden who, um, you know, I don't think I got maybe one phone call since my surgery. <laughs> it was like a whole summer of wow. no one reaching out. All of a sudden, oh, Bradley boy, what's going on? Like they're like they're my uncles. Yeah. Or something. something like this. Too late, and I walked out of there, crossed the parking lot, over to the Marriott Hotel in uh, Nassau, and uh, I had never felt lighter in my life. This weight had come off me. I had just married Leslie, uh, who you've met. And uh, <laughs> she wasn't entirely sure what my plan was, uh, but basically she got married, convinced her to come down and, and live with me. She couldn't work. And then, uh, I mean, within two weeks, I quit and we were heading back. Wow. But I had never felt until that day that I had truly made a really difficult decision without looking for a pat on the back or an attaboy. I realized I was so externally motivated through hockey that – you know, you started to realize that when people gave you a pat on the back after a game and you know it wasn't a good game for you, that you started not feeling – it didn't feel good anymore. It was like, that's yeah. bullshit. And, but you, you were so trained to look for those external measurements that that was really the first time that I'd taken something very complicated and difficult and made a very unpopular decision with a lot of people. Uh, but it fundamentally changed me. And that year was so important. It, it, it just – 
it changed who I who I thought I was, who I wanted to be, what mattered. Um, and uh, you know, on one hand, I wish it would have been nice if I could have had the support and maybe been groomed a bit out of that injury and see what that could have become. Yeah. Um, but um, I went out on my own and through a series of um, interests and, and trying to create something out of nothing, I learned a lot about myself. Uh, and it was only through that self-discovery. And funny enough, my dad had taken Leslie and I both to Bob Proctor, who's kind of like a... Um, For sure. I know Bob. Yeah. And he had explained... First of all, I didn't I didn't like half of the presentation. It was very raw, raw salesy, I thought. Yeah. But he described dealing how people's brains deal with adversity. And he had drawn these very simple stick figures. And it, it was just like a light bulb went off. And I went, that's it. That describes how this stuff is happening in my head and, and gave me a bit of a roadmap to overcome it. And I went back to school that year. I started trying to sell fitness equipment. And I had, uh, actually, I'd also taken inter- interior design uh, at uh, Sheridan really? because I thought I'd be... I thought I'd be selling equipment into offices and developments, and I thought I should understand the language that they speak. So interior design, and it was me, and honestly, I think I was the only guy. It was a bunch of gals. <laughs> and it was a hard-ass course, but I had written, I think, my final test or exam uh, in the spring of that year, and the Islanders were in, in the old Maple Leaf Gardens. They were coming to play, and my old roommate, Derek King, was in, and I thought I'd go after my exam to say hi to the boys. And uh, I got there late, bought a scalp ticket. I was up in the grays. And then I decided kind of at the very last second, I'd go downstairs and say hi. I wasn't sure I was going to. Um, and I passed Bill Torrey and the coach, Al Arbor, and I went and said hi to the boys. I went back home that night not thinking anything of it, but they saw something in me that they had not seen in me prior to leaving. Interesting. Confidence, a, a, I carried myself differently. I don't know what it was, but I was definitely a changed guy. And they had called my agent the next morning who called me and said, what the hell happened last night? You know, Bill Torrey thinks you're looking great. And he gave me Bill Torrey and probably with the, the, um, the um, support of Al Arbor, they gave me a really rare opportunity. Come back and give it another shot after quitting. Uh, and, you know, very few people get that shot, that second shot. And I thought I wasn't totally sold on it right away. Leslie helped me walk through it, and she was fine either way, um, totally fine either way. But mm-hmm. um, ultimately I said, you know, I wish I could have done it and tried dealing with those challenges as the guy I am today versus the guy I was before I had this year. And I went back and we set some goals and, and established some, you know, if by this time I'm not doing these things or I'm not playing a style of hockey that I'm proud of or happy of, we'll pack it in. Like, we'll just, that's it. And it was, uh, you know, it took a few years. And then all of a sudden things started clicking. I started, you know, playing a lot more. I played in a regular line for through 92, 93, which was our best, best year the Islanders had since the cup years. Yep. And I was really part of something great. But, I don't think I could have done that without that year um, and that self-discovery. Um, so it really, really helped me become a stronger individual that was motivated more internally. You know, that notion of li- looking at yourself in the mirror at night and going, did I give it an honest effort today? Yeah. Uh, there were times where I was like, I'm calling bullshit. Like, I don't think you gave it. <laughs> you know, I don't think you did it. 
And so I was much more hyper aware of that. I was able to deal with adversity when that when I could feel it hitting that side of my brain and the, the Bob Proctor symbols were, were firing yep. off. And it, you know, instead of the, this other book I had read explained it differently, you know, people either become a possum when faced with adversity, just emotionally dumb themselves down and kind of go through it just enough to not fail fully, but not to, to achieve success. Uh, and that was really how I was facing hockey prior. It was just like, well, I'll just, I'll get by. I don't really want to wake the bear over there because I don't want to have to fight that guy and I don't want to have to do that. And then now approaching it, you know, you, you are either the bear where you're going to attack the, the problem in an, in an aggressive way and use that as energy, or you're going to be this possum, which is kind of a lack of emotion um, uh, way. And it, it, it's really the equivalent of what you see all the time around you, people committing this career suicide. And you, yeah. What are you thinking? Just show up on time. The basics are pretty easy when it comes to work and careers. Just a lot of it starts with just get up and show up on time and be engaged and be teachable and be present. And so many people start checking out and they, they don't realize intentionally what they're doing is they're creating this negativity. And anyway, so that was my big lesson. And, uh, you know, I think I, I pull from that well of experience uh, more regularly than I can imagine, like than I maybe am even aware of. Yeah. So when you went through that transition and then went back, was there something where maybe you sat down with the coach and you told him, I'm not going to play that style of game anymore? No, that conversation never would happen. Interesting. Um, I played, I think I played tougher. I just, I, you know, and I just, I think they just knew that wasn't me. But I, I, I was serving enough of a purpose that I was this third line checker. And, you know, we had a good run there after I'd come back um, where I added enough value, like that momentum player, you know, that we're going to get the energy guys. We're going to get yep. those guys. And I hit a ton. Like I just, I hit a lot in it, you know, uh, at that time. I was, you know, finished checks, get pressure, um, started penalty killing. So, you know, I'd, get, I'd mix it up more physically, but I was not the guy sitting on the bench, which was this era of hockey that I played in that, you know, when I talked to guys that played in that era to that, you know, 90s, really, late 80s, 90s, it was a really unique, and I don't mean best type of hockey. I mean, it was like, it was a really odd era of, of you know, nuclear bombs on every bench. And it, it wasn't a... Uh, you know, I love the skill today. I wish there was a bit more elements from the past. But, uh, you know, I look at the tough guys in the league at the time and, and the guys that got paid to sit there and just get tapped on the shoulder and go out. Um, I just couldn't be that guy. And for a while there, I think they thought, well, if he can't score, that's going to be his job. Um, so I don't know. I settled into this third line checker, sometimes up on the second line with, with injuries. Um, and I felt good. I felt, you know, I didn't have anxiety. I didn't have uh, yeah. ulcers. Um and I enjoyed those last six years, you know, so much more than the first two, you know, two and a half, um, just because I had a different perspective. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't let the things I couldn't control bother me as much as they used to. Gotcha. That makes sense. So then when you finally were done with hockey, what age were you? Oh, 28, 29, somewhere. Oh, there. So you're young. Right. And, yeah. and hockey's pretty much, I mean, you went through that year of tra- transformation, which really helped, but hockey up until that point was pretty much everything you you've known. And now you got to reinvent yourself, walk through that process. Like you, you realize now hockey's done. Now you need to find something else. Um, what was that transition like? 
Well, and I don't know how I was so naive, but I, I mean, I didn't, I, I, throughout my hockey career, I had, because the Islanders, we did not have good long seasons because the playoffs were out for some of them, but I would go back and I'd take university courses at U of T, at Mac, and um, Hofstra on Long Island was my kind of my home school, although I never attended class there. But I was collecting, I was collecting um, uh, courses and experiences, and I just thought I'd jump back into school, I'd finish off a degree, and we'd go from there. But then all of a sudden you have an injury, you get spit out. I had just bought a bagel franchise of all things. Uh, Pat Flatley, who was a teammate, uh, was our captain at the time. His brother and his family had started this Great American Bagels out of Chicago. We would eat them all the time when we rolled through Chicago. And they were incredible. It was just amazing. And, and the team loved it. We couldn't wait for our Great American Bagels. And then Great Canadian Bagels started. And I just, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm going to say fortunately, Pat and I were injured at the same time sitting in press boxes. And he was just talking my ear off about what was happening up in Canada. And I made a commitment to buy one. And I had the opportunity to buy one, um, a franchise in Oakville, yep. in, uh, which I thought was a good market. I didn't, hadn't lived there, but we had lived in Hamilton. And I figured, you know, my life might exist more towards Toronto. Um, and so while before I even knew I was retiring with this inju- wrist injury that I had, I launched and started and trained a manager. And we opened with great, you know, great guns ablaze in, in, in Oakville. We were doing out of the gate crazy business and i'm thinking boom perfect never have to run i'll just kind of manage from here i didn't know how to manage anything i didn't know what i was looking at and uh i just kept seeing we were on target to make just under like a million dollars in 50 cent bagels it was crazy um and then i noticed that my bank account i had seeded the bank with some cash and then by august when i had retired already um because i had done that i come back and the bank keeps getting less money, shorter <laughs> short stack, and our sales are here. I don't understand the difference, and I needed I needed to get money from the bank. I needed to borrow money from the bank to make payroll in that first summer. Wow. I couldn't do it. And I, it was like this wave of, you know, which is a lesson I apply all the time, is this, unless you're getting real-time information, which I wasn't, most people get it at three to four months too late. Yeah. And that, it, it, when it hits you, it's like a tidal wave. You know, it's almost unfixable. Um, anyways, the bank said they wouldn't give me money unless I brought in a, a financial uh, assistant, a, a bookkeeper, accountant. So I hired the guy the bank recommended, and he, in that next six months, taught me like he was like going to school. He taught me the basics of of the P and L and our balance sheet. Um, and for the first time, <clears throat> it was like I took the blinders off and I could see where my money was going. Yep. I could see what my food cost should be. I could see what my staffing cost should be. Um, I could see just the food waste at the end of the night. Um, and then I was starting to manage. And then, you know, we turned quite a corner in the, the second half. Um, but I realized that, you know, two options had to apply here. Either I had to run, open more stores okay. to make any money. I wasn't paying myself hardly anything. I didn't see the future that I was going to be able to. Um, and I thought, well, that would be even worse, wouldn't it, if I actually had twice as much work making no money. <laughs> and so I decided to sell it. And, uh, you know, the timing couldn't have been better. I sold it right at the cusp of the Atkins diet. So no one's eating pasta, no one's eating bread. Oh, wow. And Oakville being fairly current and on the mark and trendy at the time, they were probably leading the charge of like, 
you couldn't sell a bagel in Oakville if you wanted to. So I got my money out. I didn't make money on the sale, but I do I do look at those couple years of running that store um, that, uh, A, I was good at marketing because, you know, I think I won uh, National Marketing Store of the Year. Wow. Um, I, w I was brought in on, like, committees. And so I was doing something right. I just couldn't make money doing it. So I learned, took the lessons I learned, and that kind of seat of your pants MBA. And I was thankful I didn't lose my, you know, anything that I'd made that wasn't a ton after hockey, but I had some in the bank. Um, and I could move on. And, uh, and it was from there, moved on, took that experience, and started uh, kind of focusing more in this marketing area that I had always um, gravitated to. Gotcha. So when you were working in the bag, like what were some of the things you were doing marketing-wise that you felt like when you look back on were, were really working for you? Um, well, we, you know, we supported an awful lot of things locally. Um, you know, we were in the, you know, we were in the Christmas parades. We were, you know, we, I'd hired, which I'm quite proud of. We, we hired, um, um, fairly diverse workforce. Yeah. Um, we had, um, a young guy uh, named Mike who had down syndrome and his parents were, um, customers and they loved the energy of our store and said, you know, we'd love Mike to be able to work here. And I was a bit torn because I didn't want to say no, but I also said that we need to find a, a we need to find something that Mike can feel proud of and yeah. functionally do. Um, and so he was, he ended up, I think, becoming a bit of the heart and soul of my, you know, 16 to 20 year old staff, who, when they were having a crappy day, didn't quite think they were having a crappy day anymore because Mike wanted to hug them and wanted to look after them, yeah. and he was a cheerleader and he loved our team and I, he, through him, I started volunteering, coaching uh, special Olympics floor hockey, um, which was a highlight for me. Um, and then oddly enough, I think probably that put it over the top that year was Mike um, on his street in, in East Oakville, uh, a Charlie Sheen film was being filmed. Okay. And so uh, I just happened to say, Hey, take Charlie some bagels, like take him some bagels. Yeah. So Mike not only goes, but he puts his uniform on and walks up the street. And next thing you know, Charlie's his buddy for the for the month that he's shooting there. And <laughs> a picture in the paper with Charlie Sheen and Mike, and he's like a local celebrity. Uh, Mike's now a local celebrity. And then all of the goodwill that we maybe put into it um, uh, paid off. And, it, you know, you do all the basics, ad stuff. And, yep. um, but, you know, you also learn that, you know, you're, you're creating patterns in your customer base by, you know, you realize that when you put on specials, you sell at a lower margin. But you have these great sales, so you start realizing, you know, how do we do this maintaining margin? How do we do this a bit more effectively? How do we bundle something? So you learn those lessons that you're training your customers to only buy when your bagels are on sale. Yeah. So how do we actually create more of an experience here? And so those, all of that was a great experience for me that, I, that I'm glad I'm not doing. And I would say this, if anyone's looking to get into a franchise, you know, do a bit more homework, but also realize that <clears throat> many of them, you know, you've, they really aren't, it's kind of like people, I've heard it said that, you know, you buy a franchise, you know, you, you, you invest your life savings to get a minimum wage, you know, if you're not careful. Yeah. And if you're not careful and you don't have those business skills that I didn't have, I fortunately developed some of them, um, you can end up being handcuffed to it. And uh, particularly if you look at a business that's a seven day a week operation, you never really mentally take a break. So when I started getting working, working a traditional marketing job and I was, doing some work for a tech company, some consulting, which I ended up working for them on a biz dev marketing role. 
I didn't understand. I, I don't think I'd ever had weekends off in my whole life. Yeah. It was like a, like a month. It was fantastic. <laughs> so anyways, these all of these things progressed um, and getting the rhythm of, of a different type of business and applying those experiences um, were, uh, you know, weirdly, um, none of it really seemed to be part of my original plan, but I think they've all shaped me in ways that I'm pleased they did. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I mean, my father, I grew up in the restaurant industry, so I know how difficult that is. So when you're going in raw, not knowing much about business, food and beverage is a very, very difficult business to start with. Yeah, I totally. <laughs> so you get into marketing. Um, now all of a sudden, you know, you go th- probably through a whole bunch of different things and, and you start a company. Oh, that, yeah. So that was, <clears throat> that was a couple years after, um, I know because I going back the connection is mm-hmm. I was um, when I was playing for the Islanders. I was um, the, our player rep for a while. Okay. It was not a popular job to put your hand up and say, "Well, I'll be the player rep for the union," uh, particularly when you're not one of the top players. Um, but I did. I was interested in it, uh, and it ended up being a, that ended up being a very informative era for me because we um, uh, went through a lockout, went through a strike. It was really fascinating to watch that process. But somebody had heard through someone who knew me that uh, I had been on this committee, I was on the, on the Players Association, that I might be able to connect them um, to the folks that do licensing around the Nagano Olympics, I think it was. Um, and so I just literally stepped in, did some intermediary stuff, I introduced them and uh, uh, joined this fella, um, David Lukacs, at uh, a few events, a few functions, a few announcements. And we hit it off and he invited me to come on board, which I was thankful for because yeah. I really wasn't sure what I was going to do next. But it, it was in areas that I was finding that I had stuff to offer in. And I spent two years there. Um, and the problem was I was doing that at the, at the time of uh, just on the front end of that tech bubble at the end of the 90s where everybody and anyone was in, in, uh, in tech and investing in .com, this, .com, that. Um, and, the, and David, unfortunately, you know, we, we had this really great product, which was a universal payment gateway, which was way ahead of people actually shopping online. Like <laughs> it wasn't happening. We were trying to develop programs to get people to buy stuff online, which was, you know, God, back yeah. then it was quite something. But um, um, we just never really seemed to advance. A lot of a lot of pipe dreams, a lot of uh, back end, you know, back end deals and. Uh, you know, the smoke and mirrors of that era really stuck with me. Um, and so we had, uh, the guy that ended up being my business partner, another Brad, Brad Friesen, um, he was, um, he had left a big agency communications firm and was doing PR for him uh, and investor relations. And I was working with him directly to develop these programs for these invest- uh, these uh, venture capitalists. So we were chasing all their deals and they seeded us with a little bit of money to start a business to support them outside of that, which was Starshot, which is what we run yep. today, 20 years this summer. Um, and uh, I think, you know, in the first four months, we'd spent that money on flights and travel <laughs> and whatever we had to do. And um, then the market kind of crashed and everybody ran away. And we should have probably folded shop, done, left and just said goodbye. Uh, but Brad and I just had nowhere else to go at the time. So we stuck it out stayed in that tech space and probably the most organic mid-level pace growth of a company that you could imagine. Um, and you know, 
we had these little milestone moments that got us to another level, another, another level. Um, and, you know, that's been our development, but we have firmly been placed, placed ourselves within the tech world. Yep. Most of our company, our, our clients, we're a marketing firm. I didn't, I don't know if I even said that. So we're a marketing uh, shop, primarily B2B. Um, big chunk of our business is uh, supporting Fortune 100 tech companies in their channel marketing program. Okay. So we're doing channel marketing, um, sales support, sales incentives, sales training, um, uh, appointment setting on that side of the business. And then the other half um, are events. And of course, that currently is the most affected due to COVID yeah, shutdown. Of course. We are doing virtual events, but we are certainly not, you know, that's an area of the business that we are uh, uh, forced to be a bit more patient with right now. But uh, so we're, we're, we're this marketing shop, but you know, it's, it's, you know, it's that time you kind of, you know, you, you make your first 500,000, you know, that stretches you. Then you start, oh, well, we can't scale this way. And our biggest scaling moment, um, you know, Microsoft was a client at that point and, uh, we had kind of worked our way in on a, I think it was a six event pilot program okay. that um, delivered the gangbusters. It was fantastic. And so that became 30 events, 100 events, 300 events, and then a whole bunch of other design and creative around that. Um, but the reporting requirements of working for a Fortune 100 firm were going to kill us. We didn't have the manpower to do all the reporting they required at the, at the level that they needed it. Yep. So we started actually, you know, investing in our, you know, we did most of the work ourselves. We did most of the development ourselves, quite frankly. Um, we started using their technology to find more efficient ways of working. You know, we, we were using SharePoint back in a time where it was just a file repository and we were using it with relatable databases, uh, relatable lists and databases that were functioning together. And it gave us a dashboard for the first time and it allowed us to not wow. have to work two weeks to deliver a report because we were doing it all behind scenes manually. Um, and that we changed the way that we were doing work. And then we converted at some point again, as scale and growth started to challenge us. Um, we, we were selling a lot of CRM at the time or marketing a lot of CRM for them through their partner channel and uh, realized that CRM wasn't just a customer relationship database, um, which it was being primarily marketed and used as, but it was a related, it was just a relational database. Yeah. Once we understood the mechanism of it, we actually built an operational platform that we still use today. It's been evolved, but it, it, our entire company, everybody's calendars, everything just runs through our CRM. Um, functionally, you know, oddly, we don't use it really for our own marketing efforts. <laughs> just we, it, the best thing it's done is it's made us a wickedly operationally efficient agency. Um, I think beyond many agencies' abilities. Uh, so it's allowed us to compete against much larger, better funded um, agencies. And it's allowed us to also scale more than the scrappy smaller agencies, which we were and still feel we are. So investing in that technology that we were helping the market changed us fundamentally. Gotcha. And, and it is still today, I would say, the major difference in how we operate as an agency versus, I think, any of our competitors. Uh, it's been very helpful. Interesting. So like during those times and you're kind of going through, maybe you talk, come, I'll call them pivotal moments. Is this something where you and your partners just kind of sat down and made these decisions together? Was there like an outside, was there someone from an outside perspective you could lean on that maybe had been through it that you're, you could ask some questions to? We certainly knew, um, well, we knew every reseller, every partner 
working for any tech company in Canada at that point, because we worked with everybody. Oftentimes in channel marketing, of course, you know, the money that say Microsoft or HP or others um, wants, you know, they, they have this money, a bucket of money. They want to, they want their resellers to go sell their products. So they give them money and ideally to do marketing and sales initiatives <clears throat> as a channel marketing, in, it, you basically are kind of Switzerland in the middle providing skill sets and stuff. So, you know, that money would come to us and we would deliver services. Uh, and so we really got intimately got to know people. Yeah. They, we, but we also never had the money or the resources to invest like the, the, the product we ended up building for ourselves, you know, we, because we were also a Microsoft partner at that time, we, we got, you know, um, an action pack license pack. So it gave us a discounted licensing on our internal stuff, which is obviously now we're running, um, differently, but, uh, we, we were able to get in cheap on the software side and because we understood so much about the key, the key selling points of the software, we knew what we could ask it to do. And so starting simply, and then we would add very simple components within CRM that became our own thing. Um, you know, simple things like, you know, as much as we don't sell time as an agency, the worst thing you could ever do is sell time because there's no real value in it. Yeah. Um, it's our only measure of input. So like we still have to track that and understand where our time's going um, as much as we don't want to sell it as a unit. Um, so, you know, there's so many timesheet software platforms and, you know, whether it's just writing all your timesheets down guys. So we know what we're working on. Um, it was always bullshit. It was always speculative and it was always people doing it last minute. So you, whatever the hours needed to be, your staff made the hours look like that. And so you gotcha. really had no, not useful. So then we just said, let's simplify it. Let's use the calendar and outlook, tag it to the CRM code that we've created, like a docket. Um, and as much as that's not perfect, our expectation is that you're going to manage your calendar more than you're going to manage this. So update your calendar through the week. It gave us instantly more insights yep. and, and visibility. And it, there's no benefit either way of shorting your hours as a, as a staff member here or padding your hours. Like it's, it's, it becomes very obvious when you see revenue coming in that's attached <laughs> to the project and that somebody's burning a thousand hours on it. You go, okay, well, that's not, that's not what we planned. Or if people say, we're so bloody busy, oh my God. And you're like, well, he's marked, you know, 90 minutes last month. Like, what's going on? Are we missing something? So it's it's not that you want to be a big brother, but these measurements and tools that we started using fundamentally changed our ability to, com ability to compete um, at any level. And uh, and it, it, that, that allowed us to scale into the States, allowed us to change fundamentally how actually at the time Microsoft's partner channel was being the events and supporting services. We really did a good job at that time changing. And I remember the, um, the head of marketing at the time in Canada. Um, um, and she, uh, after our presentation, cause we had kind of grown and Microsoft was our growth bed. We okay. learned a lot yeah. for them. So I mentioned them only because we still know many people from those days. Um, and our network still really kind of comes from that. <clears throat> but, uh, they were a very challenging customer, but it was very maverick oriented at the time. A lot of, um, you know, people fighting to do great work. Um, not that they're not now, but at the time it was particularly present. Um, but the guy that got us started, this fellow named Eric Mall, he was a, he was kind of like a, a product specialist and he was the guy that got us in our first pilot program. 
But he always kept saying, the more successful things became, he goes, just let's keep our heads under the keep our heads under the cubicles. We don't want anybody to know what we're doing. And at some point, that thirty thousand dollar PO that we originally got approval for through Eric, you know, became you know three hundred thousand dollars. And all of a sudden, procurement started going. Who the hell is this agency? That's we don't know. Yeah. All of a sudden, you got to go. You got to do pitch. You got to do RFPs now. All of a sudden, there's more accountability. Um, but we came on board. We had already developed all this internal knowledge. We built our system to support them almost exclusively on their own platform. So that was beautiful. And when we did our pitch, it wasn't a bells and whistles pitch. It wasn't like, you know, showing the creative work. It was we really talked about operational efficiency and how we were going to plan on scaling their partner programs, uh, which in the world of anybody in marketing, it's the most boring part of that conversation. It's the spreadsheets, it's the scalability, it's all that stuff. And we we pitched on this large table. I'll never forget it because it was we were done and it was like crickets. <laughs> no. Like, oh shit. So that didn't land very well. Yeah. And then this this woman just looking into her hands, pause, and the whole world was waiting for what she thought. And she just looked up and said, This gives me hope. And wow. it was like Boom, it was like bells going off and it for the first time validated us on a big scale. Yeah. And so that then we went off and, and we had a good run with them in Canada. They were doing we were doing such unique work in Canada that we won in the States. So we got put on the roster in the States. Um, and so that was our launch pad. Um, and, uh, you know, the beautiful part is we were learning their, ta- their technology because we were helping to market it. And secondarily, they were a customer that would tell you what they needed. It was like, if you just listened, they actually gave you your business roadmap. And uh, so we listened and we developed and we build and we'd try stuff. And it was where we cut our teeth. And it's where we, I think, you know, we still, Brad and I refer to many of those lessons um, uh, and the lessons of, of, you know, how we ended up focusing on operational efficiency uh, instead of just, you know, um, navel gazing and, yes. and bells and whistles. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm curious, like through your time doing this as an entrepreneur, how much support was given to you by the NHL or the Islanders organization that you, that you were in? Uh, nothing. Uh, so there was the bones of a transitional program happening with the alumni, but they had no money. They had no resources, very little stuff. Uh, but I put my hand up very early <clears throat> to suggest because I'm not, I'm not a well. Again, the setup to that is I'm not going to throw names around only because yep. it's not flattering at that era. Um, I went in and had a meeting with the president at the time uh, of the alumni. The, when you're gone from the Islanders, you're gone, uh, and they were not an organization that had a, an active alumni. If you didn't live on Long Island, you got, got invited to nothing. You did nothing. You heard from nobody. And that was fine. It wasn't great, but that's just the way it was. Um, but on the other hand, I thought, well, this alumni thing probably has to have something going on. And what I went in and I described this vision of, you know, you know, hockey is one part and this transition, which there was talk of a transition type support, yeah. meeting with people, talk transition. I said, transition is only part of the puzzle. We've got the rest of our lives to have to make our way. And if we don't have anywhere to plug in or any resources or any, um, network. I always felt it was un- it was just not it was kind of cruel, really, 
that I couldn't pick up a phone and call someone as an alumni and go, hey, listen, I'm going to be in New York and I you know, would love to inter- I would love an introduction to someone at this. Yeah, <clears throat> that just didn't happen unless you happen to know somebody. Uh, so I was really talking about a business networking approach uh, with the development of skills and getting plugged into corporations who would love to share some of that knowledge with ex-NHLers. I thought, I just want to hear from people out there in the world doing it. I, you know, when I retired, I, I felt I was eight years behind all of my peers. They'd all been working in the industry. Some of them were VPs sure. already. They all were. And I'm like, where is that? How do I plug in? And uh, anyway, so I was told at the time, Brad, you know, basically slow down. You know, all the fellows really want from the alumni, Brad, is a nice place to get together and get, have a social, have a few beers, raise a bit of money for charity. And I thought, well, that, you know, first of all, I was not a guy of a brand that was needed for such activities, really. You know, oh, we're going to, we got Brad Delgarno coming. Sorry, who? <laughs> uh, but, uh, oh, sorry. I thought I had that up. But um, anyway, so uh, I was very disheartened. So I actually started spending my own money to start a business networking thing. Wow. And I had probably at some point 20 guys showing up and I would invite people that I'd met along the way to come and talk, not to sell us, but just to talk about their personal business experiences. And that was awesome. But then after a little while of that, I'm like, well, I don't want to spend my own money. So then I started getting creative, which I guess is that marketing side of me. And I started calling organizations like the RBC and others and saying, listen, I'm running a business networking group with the alumni. I would love to host that at your boardroom. And I would love to have the first half hour to us and then invite some of your senior leaders down to talk to us and share some experiences. And I, you know, RBC, I don't want you selling financial services. I don't want you selling anything. It's, I want you guys to open the curtain and say, here's what business is like, and here's what you need to learn. And here's what we do. Okay. Take the mystery away from business. And uh, it happened. And I, we did Microsoft, I did RBC. Um, shoot, I did, I think I did one more. And personally, funny enough, you know, RBC offered, offered me a job after just because I had the, the, the initiative to organize it, didn't take it. But it, I learned you could create things from nothing. Uh, and uh, then guys started getting restless. I had a few guys at one point say, hey, Brad, you know, like, I got no business. What's happening? Nothing's happening. I'm like, all right, piss off. I just like, I can't just push this rock by myself yeah. and without anybody understanding that this is a long-term proposition and it's just, let's just share this experience together. The alumni's got it getting better, um, certainly. Um, uh, I think Glenn Healy's doing a, a remarkable job in there right now. Um, uh, and Mark Napier pushed it as far as he could. Glenn's the right guy for the right time. And they're really rethinking how that works. So, you know, good on them. Um, I've put my hand up to pitch in and help out any way I can, but it's there's really been no roadmap or no help for not only me, for anyone. So um, there are people that are fortunate enough to have mentors and folks that point the way. I think I've had a few of them along the way, but I wish I had more. Yeah. I wish I had more people that could demystify the stuff I didn't know. Because I, I had such a insecurity complex and a lack of confidence in something that I thought was I was missing. I thought there was a magic toolbox you got when you left university that answered all these questions. And I obviously learned that that wasn't the case. And so I was... I stopped being worried about it because I kept doing work and people were saying, Hey, that's good work. And, uh, and so that's the evolution, quite frankly, you know, you just 
realize at some point you've got to make your own way. There's no, there is no easy path. And as much as I thought I would, I would end up somehow figuring it out. I didn't realize how bloody hard it was going to be. Yeah. It's interesting. Really not the journey I thought it would. So, I mean, there's athletes who listen to this. We've had some hockey players, some guys in the NFL and all the stories kind of sound very similar. What piece of advice would, would you give someone who maybe is an athlete right now or making that transition or thinking about it? What, what's something that you would tell someone like that? Well, two things. There's, there's, there's two camps I, I've noticed even in my day, there was, there was a smaller group of us that would be in, interested in life outside of hockey. You know, there were guys like, you know, Ken Baumgartner, uh, you know, tough guy. You know, he was studying. He was taking courses. He was doing summer courses. He was reading on the buses, you know, big, thick textbooks. Uh, then there's, uh, you know, other guys that were, you know, had started um, uh, small businesses. Or they were just even, you could tell by the conversations you had, they were they were interested in things outside of hockey. Mm-hmm. And they were articulate. Um, whereas the other camp... I do worry there are some guys, and I still hear it, they think uh, um, uh, that super, the superstitiousness about even looking past your, your current day. If you look past the job today and my career today, it's going to fall apart. The minute I think about life after hockey, it's going to fall apart. Um, and so guys, I think a lot of guys wait too long to start thinking about it. I think, in fact, you become a more... Uh, and maybe sometimes it hurt me versus helping me, but I think the more analytical you get in a sport that requires um, the level of commitment and physical um, uh, execution, violent or not, uh, I think the more, I think being a thinker doesn't always help you. Uh, You don't always get rewarded for that. And sometimes you're too analytical. Sometimes you just got to throw the mitts off and not, you know, throw caution to the wind. Uh, But uh, the guys that, I saw that we're doing those things, um, interests outside, reading things. Uh, you could speak to them on a number of topics. Um, have done better. Yeah, they've done well, um, and they've all had to create their own route, their own path. Um, so one thing is just, I guess, the first step is um, you're not going to die by thinking about life after hockey. Your career won't end. Uh, so get over that, and have an interest, whether it's with your goddamn money. Oh, some I got someone looking after that understand it be interested in it um and then secondarily um do something uh, it's the same advice that really i give my kids is i only advanced and got where i have gotten today by um having an interest in something cobbling together and it's a shitty little something yeah. we not, we're not talking about a 20-year business at that point we're talking about i remember having an idea for a, a game you know, this hockey game, you know, it's a crokinole, but it was different. And it, had, it was like uh, uh, like collectible cards, but they were chips. Okay. And I just happened to have a guy, uh, the Fox 40 whistle people and the flute transport people who were friends from Hamilton. Uh, I, I went to them and they helped me fabricate a, a mock-up set. And I went and talked to Canada Games and I was had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> but in high, you know, when you look back, you're mortified where did I get the confidence to even think that? And I don't know. I just have this notion that do something. None of those things were going to break me yeah. or put poor house. They weren't big, stupid bets that I was putting my family at risk, but they were things that every one of those stupid things I pitched and thought about 
maybe weren't so stupid. They weren't so stupid that people didn't go, hey, there's something there. And then, you know, they go, yeah, we'll pass. And then you're like, oh, shit. So then you realize 90% of this stuff isn't going to really work out. So, you know, as, as you say, you, it started this notion that just have a project, start a project. I don't even care if that project is in the summer. Learn how to build a shed in your fancy backyard. Yeah. Do something. Get your hands dirty. Don't sit around and wait and don't think that your money is going to be there forever. So just develop yourself. And, 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 and without any embarrassment, and it's weird to even say that, but I, I saw an embarrassment in guys that, that felt that they had to apologize for or, or didn't want to look, to look at themselves or develop themselves while they're in their career because it was a bad reflection on them taking their eye off the ball. Mm. And I just totally believe, even when you're playing, there were guys that were way better networkers than I were, was, and they've turned that into something. Um, uh, but they were busy. Yeah. And they were actively busy and connecting and just quite honestly, not selling anybody anything, but just being interested in their business, interested in what they had to share with you. It's shocking when you're interested in somebody and you happen to have a profile. Those people get pretty j jacked up when a guy from the Islanders 100%. or somewhere else is interested in my business. They're interested in my, what I have to offer and not in a passing way, but in a, in a meaningful way. And then guess what? You know, opportunities might come your way and not that you're doing that for that. But that guy goes, that guy's he's a good dude. He knows what he's doing. He's articulate. We got to get him on board here. And there's been a lot of guys that have developed after hockey through those relationships. Just don't be a lump on a log thinking that your only development thing is, you know, that fancy goddamn trick shot that you're going to do in a shootout. That's important. God knows I should have spent more time doing that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, do something, be active. Put yourself out there, um, you know, and uh, in the act of failing a whole bunch, you learn so much. Yeah, I love that. Well, the great piece of advice, Brad, if people wanted to, to connect with you, learn more about you, where's the best place everyone could go? Well, Brad Delgarno, I, 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 all my contacts I share openly on LinkedIn. Perfect. Feel free to reach LinkedIn or through starshot.com. Um, that's our company, and uh, you can probably reach us through there as well. But uh, we'd love to chat with anybody. Anybody's interested. Awesome. Well, I, always love, I love chatting with you. Of course. Well, we love chatting with you. I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on here and sharing your time and wisdom and story. I know a lot of people are going to take a lot from it. I know I did myself. So thank you so much. Uh, thanks for pulling this together. I appreciate it. You got it, it Brad. And uh, everyone, if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure, as always, hit that subscribe button. Share this out with one person who you feel like could really benefit from today's episode. We'll be back next week with another one. Until then, Colin Morgan signing off. And always remember to keep on grinding. And thank you to our sponsor today, Just Go Grind. Again, go and check out that podcast. If you are interested in sponsoring the show, just go over and visit colinmorgan.biz. Again, colinmorgan.biz. We'll talk again soon.